లవింగ్ సాయిరామ్ అండ్ గ్రీటింగ్స్ ఫ్రమ్ ప్రశాంతి నిలయం స్టార్టింగ్ దిస్ వీక్ ఐ ఇంటెంట్ టు ప్రజెంట్ ఎ సిరీస్ ఆఫ్ టాక్స్ మెంట్ మెయిన్లీ ఫర్ దోస్ హు ఆర్ నాట్ ఫెమిలియర్ విత్ ఇండియన్ మైథాలజీ ఆర్ పురాణాస్ ఎస్ వీ రెఫర్ టు దెమ్ ఇన్ ఇండియా బేసికలీ దీస్ టాక్స్ వుడ్ రివాల్వ్ అరౌండ్ ద స్టోరీస్ ఆఫ్ రామా అండ్ కృష్ణ and i'm sure you are familiar with these names and that i suppose includes many listeners from overseas also in presenting these talks i would like to start with an apology right at the beginning and this apology is made to indian listeners many of whom might consider that my talk and my presentation is not adequate and lacking in many respects well i readily agree that my presentation is a highly simplified one however i have taken the liberty of making it so because my aim is to get across to the unfamiliar listener the essential aspects of the two great avatars the rama avatar and the krishna avatar i'm sure and confident that despite these shortcomings these talks would help in their own way those who are unfamiliar with the ramayana and the mahabharata to understand better the numerous references that swami makes to these great epics in his discourses i should also not omit to mention that swami has not only narrated the stories of these earlier avatars extensively but has also written about them in his ramakatha rasa vahini in the bhagavata vahini to name just two books i do hope these talks would induce listeners to go to those sources for greater clarity and inspiration with these caveats and introductory remarks let me now get on with the job in the bhagavad gita krishna refers to the repeated incarnations or the avatars of lord almighty According to the scriptures of India or Bharat as Swami often refers to it there have been several avatars in the very early ones the lord did not assume a human form it was only later that he began to assume the human form my focus as i mentioned a little while ago would be mainly on the rama and the krishna avatars in both of which the lord came down with a human form for the record i might mention that i have already covered the shirdi avatar in an extensive series of musing talks given i think about a year ago now although god has incarnated many times one really does not know how many according to a common tradition on counts only 10 avatars all of which are supposed to be incarnations of vishnu you might be aware the divinity in the indian tradition as a threefold aspect related respectively to creation the sustenance of creation and finally the dissolution of creation according to folklore these three aspects are managed by three gods deities aspects of the same god call it whatever you wish from the traditional point of view they are respectively denoted by the names brahma who is in charge of creation vishnu 
who plays the role of the protector and sustainer, and Shiva, who takes care of dissolving creation. Many firmly and religiously believe in this triune, but as Swami reminds us, the Supreme is formless, and as such, attributing specific forms like Brahma, etc. is largely a matter of convenience and maybe even tradition. Well, the question then arises, in that case, what is it that incarnates? Vedanta gives a clue and Krishna confirms it in the Gita. Krishna says, it is essentially the unmanifest divinity that is beyond space and time, which is formless and eternal, that assumes a particular form for a particular purpose. That unmanifest divinity, which is even beyond creation, is also referred to as Supreme Consciousness. There are many other names. In other words, at the highest philosophical level, God is Supreme Consciousness. And a projection of the Supreme Consciousness in some form onto space and time, and for the specific purpose of preserving Dharma, is what really constitutes an avatar. Since every projection on space and time has a form, when God incarnates as an avatar, clearly the avatar too has a form. Maybe I should add a few more remarks to supplement the above. You see, when God creates the universe, it is not as if he moves from one plane to another, vacating one and occupying the other. Let us say there is a tree and there is also sunlight. The tree would naturally cast a shadow. As a result, we then have both the tree as well as the shadow. The tree is the totality, while the shadow being a projection of the tree on a two-dimensional plane, no doubt has features related to the tree. Thus it is that in the shadow we see bits and pieces of the trunk, the branches, the leaves and so on. However, all the details in the original tree are not seen in the shadow. Similarly, when God creates the universe by projecting himself, all aspects of his divinity are not fully evident in this projection, namely creation. That applies to some extent to the avatars too. For example, God is eternal, but in creation, every entity that is born including the avatars, disappears later due to natural processes. To repeat, as Krishna explains, the universe is a projection of the absolute, eternal, formless God on space-time. Further, all the diversity we see is a trick of the divine shadow play. That is, on the stage called space-time, the one appears as many. You would surely agree that just because the shadow is there, the tree does not vanish or cease to be. This is a very important point, And it is to stress this that Krishna essentially says to Arjuna, Arjuna, in the ultimate analysis, I am what I am. Unmanifest divinity that is absolute, eternal, attributeless and formless. A portion of my unmanifest divinity is projected on the universe, 
where I cannot be directly seen but certainly experienced. In addition, whenever required, I also appear in a special form to play a direct role myself. It is such incarnations that are called avatars. All these diverse projections constitute an infinitesimal part of myself, which is truly infinite. Let me assert, Arjuna, that when I make an appearance as an avatar, it does not mean that I abandon my absolute aspect and put in an appearance here on earth. Not at all. Just as the sun is always there while sunlight is present sometimes and absent at other times, I come and go as an avatar many times while my eternal aspect always is. This is the essence of how Krishna explained it all to Arjuna. I guess I have given enough of a background to set the stage for what follows. While my main focus would be on Rama and Krishna, I shall, for the sake of completeness, start with a brief overview of the ten avatars of Vishnu. I am aware that this point of view can be disputed and many questions also raised. Now to go into all of them would distract me from my present purpose. I shall in my introduction restrict myself to giving just a cursory overview of the ten avatars of Vishnu as I have heard it narrated. Well, just to clarify once more, my main objective in the present musing series is to focus on the story of Rama and Krishna. Those are the ones that are really important to us. However, for the convenience of many listeners, I shall embed that narrative within the framework of the ten incarnation of Vishnu that one traditionally speaks of. So on now to a brief overview of the ten avatars of Vishnu as they are popularly believed in. By the way, I shall often use the words Narayana and Vishnu interchangeably, though there might be some technical disapproval of that. As you might know, according to legend, every time the universe is dissolved, there is supposed to be a great flood or pralayam, as it is referred to. Apparently, the last time the universe was dissolved, the Vedas got drowned in the pralayam, and sank deep into the waters. A new universe had to be created, for which purpose Brahma the creator needed the Vedas. Vishnu was then given the task of retrieving the Vedas, which he did by assuming the form of a fish and descending into the waters. This incarnation of Lord Vishnu as a fish is known as Matsyavatara, Matsya means fish. Basically, this incarnation was for a rescue operation, rescue operation of the Vedas, I mean, and had nothing to do with getting rid of the bad guys. However, let us not forget that what this tale reminds us of is the importance of Vedas for the sustenance of Dharma. In other words, for the universe to exist and be sustained, Dharma is essential. That is the broad message. Next came the Kurma Avatar, in which Lord Vishnu assumed the form of a tortoise. What for? Well, he did so to give the newly created universe support. Even today, many believe that the earth rests on the back of a tortoise. 
I personally think that the real message is that it is the Lord who really supports and sustains the universe. Moving on, we next come to the Varaha avatar, where Vishnu assumes the form of a boar. This is the first time we see the Lord actually engaged in eliminating the source of evil. And I shall come to that story soon, for it is intimately related to the stories of Rama and Krishna. The fourth avatar of Vishnu is the Narsimha avatar. And that story too will come up later, like that of the Varaha avatar. On now to the fifth avatar, which is the Vamana avatar. Here, Vishnu appears as a small Brahmin, a dwarf almost. What for? That is what I shall describe now. It turned out that there was an emperor named Bali who went on a conquest spree wanting to rule over all the three worlds. In those days it was customary to talk of three worlds. Wanting to rule over all the three worlds, Bali decided in accordance with the advice of his guru Sukracharya to perform a grand yajna. In those days, whenever a big wish needed to be fulfilled, the person with the desire performed a yajna. At the end of the ritual, some god or deity was supposed to appear, whereupon one duly made the request. Bali wanted the Lord to appear and grant him the boon that would ensure for him the rulership of all the three worlds. Naturally, this ambition of Bali worried the devas or the demigods who ruled the heavens. They obviously did not want to come under Bali, an earthling. So, they appealed to Lord Vishnu to do something, which of course he agreed to. And what was it that the Lord do? He incarnated as a diminutive Brahmin. Why? Ah, that's where the story lies. Now, when a yajna is performed, priests and Brahmins gather there in large numbers because the one who performs the yajna invariably gives away a lot in charities. For Brahmins, it's a good time to collect. So when Vishnu appeared as a small Brahmin boy and joined the crowd, nobody saw anything peculiar in that, except Sukracharya, the guru of Bali. It was time to offer charity and start distributing gifts. And Emperor Bali gave to each Brahmin what was asked for, which was always reasonable and within bounds. Then came the turn of Vamana, and the emperor asked the standard question, O Brahmin, ask what you want, and I shall give accordingly. Sukracharya, the guru of Bali, knew what was to happen, and he therefore cautioned Bali. He whispered, Emperor, beware, do not make such blanket promises. The emperor turned to Bali, shook his head and said, No, I have given my word and my dharma requires me to adhere to it. The guru was dismayed, but he did not give up, and he said, But emperor, if you grant what this Brahmin asks for, you are finished. Before I carry on with the rest of the story as traditionally narrated, I must make a special reference to the way Swami tells the story, 
which he often does during his onam discourse onam is a festival in celebration of emperor bali according to folklore bali ruled in that part of india called kerala and every year on onam day bali revisits his old country to be with his people etc swami says that guru sukracharya not only cautioned bali but actually told him emperor this is no ordinary brahmin this is the very lord himself disguised as a dwarf brahmin and he has come to thwart your ambition at the request of the devas or the demigods do not therefore agree to give what he asks for swami says that bali told his guru guruji normally one asks the lord to give us but today it is the lord himself who is asking to be given how fortunate i am to have the chance to give to the lord it is my privilege to have my hand above giving and that of the lord below receiving swami adds bali had his priorities right when it comes to choosing between man and god one must always choose god bali had to decide whether he was going to accept his guru's advice go against his word or keep his promise rejecting the guru's advice in the process bali chose wisely making god his priority number 1 and as a result the lord blessed him so that he could return once every year to reunite with his people and share their merry making well to complete the story as usually told when bali agreed to give what vamana asked for the brahmin said oh emperor i do not want much i just want what three footsteps of mine can cover bali agreed and vamana took the first step with that vamana covered the whole earth bali had to surrender it to vamana vamana then took the second step with which he covered the whole sky that too was surrendered by bali to vamana the brahmin then said to bali i still have one more step left where do i put my foot after taking that step the earth is no longer available nor is the sky what do you have to say emperor bali said o brahmin you may put your foot on my head vamana did that and that was the completion of the conquest of bali so the story usually ends with vamana the victor and bali the loser swami however says that bali did not lose at all rather he achieved perfect surrender and total redemption thereby so what's the bottom line offering the head for the lord to put his foot on implies total surrender surrender to the lord as bali did that's the implied message that's the bottom line well so much for the story of vamana the fifth avatar technically the sixth avatar is supposed to be parshurama concerning whom there are many versions of the story what makes this avatar even more difficult to understand is that parshurama and rama are supposed to have a confrontation avatar versus avatar i know that there are many interpretations but since i am not able to understand them myself i would be less than honest if i try to tell you any of those stories i should however not forget to point out that swami has described the meeting between parshurama and lord rama and its tone is very different from what is normally offered the gist of it is 
that when Parasurama gave Lord Rama his bow, Parasurama formally transferred an aspect of the divine that was with him to Rama in order to complete the divine aspect of Lord Rama. Well, this brings us to the seventh avatar, namely Lord Rama, whose story is narrated separately. Later, the Lord incarnated again as Lord Krishna, making it avatar number eight. That story too would be narrated in detail later, which leaves two more avatars to complete the score of ten. Buddha is taken to be in the ninth avatar, while the tenth avatar is supposed to incarnate in this the Kali age, now running. The tenth avatar is called the Kalki avatar and is supposed to come on a horse. Many religiously believe in this chronology and for such people, Swami would not count as an avatar. For me and I guess many like me, this acceptance or rejection does not matter. Swami is here and we all accept Him as an incarnation of God. Not for this or that technical reason, but because verily He is the embodiment of Satya, Dharma, Shanti, Prema and Ahimsa. That is what a Purna avatar is supposed to be. That is what Rama was and that is what Krishna was. Thus, along with Rama and Krishna, Swami occupies a special place in human history. Which is why I am offering this overview of Rama and Krishna avatars for the benefit of those who are not familiar with those aspects of his story. Incidentally, allow me to quote what Gandhiji said about God. He said, and I quote from memory, quote, He is no God who merely satisfies the intellect. God to be God must rule the heart and transform the senses. End of quote. That is what Gandhi said. Does not that definition fit our beloved Swami perfectly? I think it does. And that is why I have no problem in accepting Swami as God personified. Whether or not Sai fits into the traditional bookkeeping is for others to worry about. I don't worry about it. Okay, let me move on. Now that I have given you the overview of the ten traditional avatars of Lord Vishnu and the place of Rama and the Krishna avatars in the scheme of ten, I should logically go straight to the story of Rama. I shall not do that and with good reason too. According to the folklore, it so happens that the stories of Rama and of Krishna are tied up with the stories of a couple of avatars that preceded these two. Why? Thereby hangs a tale, and it is to that story I shall now turn. It all starts with the rishis or sages, Sanaka, Sanandana, Sanatana and Sanatkumara making a trip to Vaikuntam, the abode of Lord Vishnu, often hailed as Narayana. As they were about to enter the Lord's chamber, they were rudely stopped by two guards named Jayan and Vijayan. Swami has clarified that Jayan and Vijayan did so because they felt that the rishis were not properly dressed. Feeling deeply insulted, the rishis cursed the doorkeeper to be born on earth, where they would be far away from their beloved Lord. At this stage, Lord Narayana himself came out of his room to investigate the commotion outside his chamber. Seeing the Lord and fearful of being banished from his divine presence, 
the two gods jain and vijayan fell at the lord's feet and begged for a waiver of the curse of the rishis narayana replied i am sorry the curse has to stand but you have a choice you can either take 10 births as virtuous men before returning to vaigundam or three births as evil beings full of hatred for me in the latter case i shall kill you both in every birth of yours and finally in the dwapara yuga both of you after annihilation would come back to me the choice is yours jain and vijayan thought that 10 births would keep them away too long from vaikuntham and so they therefore settle for three births on earth even if those births be as evil beings full of hatred for the lord thus it was that lord narayana had to incarnate several times for destroying the earthly forms of his two gods jain and vijayan okay let us now follow what happened when jain and vijayan were born three times as demons in the first such birth they were born to sage kashyapa via diti one of the sages wives these two demons were called hiranyaksha and hiranyakashyapu to get rid of these two demons the lord had to incarnate twice and so let me now start on the story of the first of two such incarnations which was meant for getting rid of hiranyaksha by intense worship of brahma the creator hiranyaksha gained several boons that conferred great powers feeling arrogant and immensely puffed up hiranyaksha then went on a rampage conquering and harassing as a part of this campaign hiranyaksha entered the nether world and challenged chief varuna to a battle varuna pleaded that he was not really a worthy opponent that the only one who could give a good fight to hiranyaksha was narayana thus lord narayana himself became a target for hiranyaksha i suppose you see here an allegorical reference to modern man who flushed with his numerous scientific and technological successes is now questioning the very existence of god from whom he has come what this mythological story tells us is that what is happening now is merely a rerun of an old episode okay to get on with my narration varaha is the avatar of lord vishnu when he came to save mother earth from the demon hiranyaksha hiranyaksha was huge and all beings trembled before him even brahma the creator could not subdue this demon going on a conquest spree hiranyaksha invaded the heavens forcing the gods to take shelter in caves I have already mentioned that Hiranyaksha also frightened the wits out of Varuna the ruler of the netherworld. Hiranyaksha now turned his attention to earth then ruled by Manu. The demon snatched the earth away from Manu and took it to the bottom of the ocean making life on earth impossible. Manu and his wife fled and threw themselves at the feet of Brahma. Brahma the creator was deeply concerned and said Manu I cannot personally destroy this wicked demon because of a boon I have granted him. But he is not safe from the might of the Lord, 
So, let us appeal to Lord Vishnu. Brahma then meditated on the Lord, and from Brahma's nostril there fell a tiny bore. Varaha is the Sanskrit word for bore. It was the Lord appearing as a bore, and that is why this avatar is called the Varaha avatar. The moment the boar appeared, it instantly grew huge in size. With a mighty roar, the boar leapt into the air and dived deep into the ocean to bring it up. Remember, Hiranyaksha had taken the earth deep inside the ocean. Meanwhile, Hiranyaksha was going around in search of Narayana so that he could challenge him. On the way, he met Sage Narada, who readily obliged the Asura, or that is the demon, with information concerning Narayana's whereabouts. Narada said that Narayana had assumed the form of a boar so that he could lift the earth with his tusk from the bottom of the ocean. Incidentally, on the ceiling of the Purnachandra Auditorium in Prashanti Nilayam, there is among the many illustrations there a depiction of Narayana and the Varaha avatar. Well, to continue with my narration, Narada told Hiranyaksha, Listen, Narayana is just about to surface from the water and if you hurry, you can catch him. For those of you who do not know, Sage Narada is a great devotee of Narayana, constantly wandering among the three worlds, singing the Lord's praise. Narada is popularly referred to as a great troublemaker, but that of course is an uncharitable description. In actual fact, it is Narayana who makes Narada play that role as a part of his great drama. Well, Hiranyaksha rushed to where Narayana was in the form of, of a boar and challenged him to a fight. A prolonged fight ensued, witnessed by the devas or the gods of the heaven, the rishis, etc. Among those present was Brahma the creator and the son of Narayana. Feeling anxious for the Lord, Brahma, who had earlier granted the boons that made Hiranyaksha so very powerful, pointed out to Narayana, that the sacred hour of Abhijit Murtam was fast approaching and this was therefore a good time to finish off the demon or asura. A delay would mean the onset of darkness when the annihilation would become more difficult since the asuras gained strength in the dark. The Lord smiled as if to say, I am time itself. And this son of mine is trying to teach me about the right time to do these things. How strange. Anyway, responding to Brahma's wish, the Lord immediately destroyed Hiranyaksha. Mission accomplished, the Lord returned to Vaikundam to await the moment when another incarnation would be necessary, this time for the destruction of Hiranyakashipu, was the brother of Hiranyaksha. For long, I used to wonder why the fight between Varaha and Hiranyaksha took so long when the Lord was supposed to be all-powerful. It was only later that I realized that Hiranyaksha taking the earth away is symbolic of humanity being hijacked by evil forces and that to rescue humanity, it takes a long fight over evil. Given today's circumstances, I am sure you would agree with my broad view of this allegorical story. 
which brings us now to the story of how the Lord took care of the second demon, Hiranyakashipu. If you happen to look at artist's rendering of Hiranyakashipu, you would find the features to be entirely human. A reminder of the fact that it is not bodily features that make a demon, but the behavior. Anyway, to get on with our story, Hiranyakashipu had but one desire, to be invincible and to be the lord of the three worlds. And in order to achieve this goal, namely to become the lord of the three worlds, Hiranyakashipu did intense penance to propitiate Brahma the creator. Brahma became pleased, appeared before Hiranyakashipu and allowed the latter to ask for boons. Hiranyakashipu said, I don't want to die. So, grant me that no creature of yours in creation will cause my death. Death shall not come to me inside the house nor outside the house. Death shall not come to me during day nor at night, nor on earth nor in the sky. And so on he gave a long list. Smilingly, Brahma granted the request. Confident that he had insured himself against all possibilities of death, Hiranyakashipu promptly launched a campaign of conquest and soon became the master of the three worlds, exactly as he had once dreamt. Now, Hiranyakashipu had four sons, of whom the youngest was Prahalada. Though born as an asura or demon, in nature and temperament, Prahalada was just the opposite. Gentle, sweet, full of kindness, and in short, totally sattvic. At the age of five, Prahalada was placed under tutors for receiving education. Now, traditionally, the instruction would include what we call both the secular and the spiritual. But hating Narayana as he did, Hiranyakashipu gave strict orders to the teachers of Prahalada that Prahalada must be taught to worship only him, namely Hiranyakashipu as the Supreme Lord and not Narayana. However, swept by his devotion for Lord Narayana, Prahalada refused to accept his father as the Supreme One. Infuriated by this, Hiranyakashipu tried his best to frighten Prahalada, but finding that threats did not work, ordered that Prahalada, his own son, mind you, be killed. The young prince was totally unperturbed. He constantly kept on chanting, Om Namo Narayanaya, and faced all the dangers. Many methods of killing were tried, such as crushing by elephants, rolling from mountains, drowning in the sea, etc., etc. But every time, Prahalada had a miraculous escape because the Lord saved him. Exasperated, Hiranyakashipu sent for his son in an effort to persuade him one more time. But even direct personal appeal was of no avail, since Prahalada would acknowledge no one except Narayana as the Supreme Lord. In desperation, Hiranyakashipu roared, I am the ruler of the three worlds, and so I should be your Lord. How can you give that status to Narayana? Where is this Narayana whom you are constantly worshipping? I don't see him. Smiling, Prahlada replied calmly, Father, 
He is everywhere. Eyes red with anger, Hiranyakashipu mockingly asked, Is he there in this pillar? Pointing to a big pillar. Prahlada replied, Yes, of course. In that case, roared Hiranyakashipu, See what I do to him. So saying, he kicked the pillar. Immediately, a thundering noise of terrifying intensity was heard. The pillar split into two and from it emerged a weird creature, half human and half lion. Narayana had come in the form of Narasimha, man-lion. Such a creature did not belong to Brahma's creation. Suddenly, Hiranyakashipu remembered the boon granted by Brahma. No death from early creatures for sure. But was he safe against this one, which was not from this creation? Hiranyakashipu looked around and discovered that it was neither day nor night. It was twilight. Again, a bad omen. Meanwhile, Narsimha lifted Hiranyakashipu and carried him to the doorstep, neither in the house nor outside. Sitting there, Narsimha placed the demon Hiranyakashipu on his lap, neither on the earth or in the sky, and then proceeded to tear the demon apart, and as a gory finale, removed his entrails and wore it as a garland. Hiranyakashipu was dead, and Narayana's mission was over. It may be noted that in both the avatars discussed above, the Lord did not assume a human form. Nor did the avatars fall in the category of Purna avatars. They were instead what are called Karana avatars, meaning functional avatars, avatars who come for a very limited and specific purpose. Swami has commented that Hiranyakashipu was a great scientist and behaved very much like his counterparts of today in denying the existence of God. What about Prahlada? Was it right on his part to disobey his father? After all, do not the Vedas declare that mother and father are God? About this, Swami says, Yes, the elders must of course be revered, but if anyone comes between an individual and God, then God must always get the priority. Thus it is that Prahlada, applying fundamental discrimination, placed God above his father. Similarly, as we saw earlier in the Vamana Avatar, Emperor Mahabali placed God above Guru, and as we shall soon see in the Ramayana, Bharata chose God above Mother. Swami has also pointed out the inner significance of the kicking of the pillar, etc. The pillar represents ignorance, and when ignorance is destroyed, knowledge shines forth. Well, that brings me to the end of this first installment. Next time we shall pick up the story from where we are living now. I do hope this talk was of some use to you. Do write and tell us what you think, won't you? God bless you. Jai Sai Ram.